KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, Michelle Obama's memoir is coming out now in paperback. It's called Becoming. It sold more than 14 million copies worldwide in hardcover and was named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times, NPR, and other places. But the book avoids politics which seems strange for the person the New York Times called the most outspoken first lady in modern history. Amy Willens will comment. And Ella Taylor will talk about the new HBO documentary on QAnon, the nutty conspiracy theory about cannibalistic pedophiles that helped mobilize people for the attack on the Capitol January 6th. But first, Biden's next big thing. After the success of his $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill, Biden's economic recovery plan is getting ready for prime time. For comment, we turn to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of the American Prospect and a contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. We reached him today at home in our nation's capital. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, infrastructure used to mean roads and bridges, and everybody was in favor of the government spending money on roads and bridges. But what Biden will be proposing is much more than roads and bridges. Yes, it really is the, uh, a major attempt to try to revive the American economy uh, and move it forward, much as to cite a much cited example, uh, Dwight Eisenhower's uh, interstate highway system did in the 1950s and 60s. Um, it, it, it's really sort of the prime economic boost that our economy needs. And if I were the Democrats, if I were in Congress or in the White House, I might point out that to vote against uh, all of what we're going to lay out here in the next few minutes, all of this is to really fulfill the fondest wish of the Chinese government, because uh, absent this kind of legislation, uh, there's, you know, it, it can be argued that we will be sinking uh, beneath the Chinese in terms of uh, having uh, the most important and uh, possibly uh, imitatable nation in the world. So uh, a, a purely jingoistic, as it were, appeal but rooted in a, a real desire to make America uh, work again in every sense of the word work. It does have roads and bridges and not everyone is for that. You will recall that Trump every uh, year trotted out an infrastructure uh, program, but the, he only had the feds funding one-tenth of it, leaving the rest to uh, states and cities which couldn't afford to do it. So not even Republicans were on board with that. The Biden people now seem to be looking at uh, dividing the bill in half. The first half would be infrastructure, roads, bridges, and green energy up the wazoo uh, with solar, with wind, with capping uh, oil wells, with discontinuing the use of coal, mandating uh, improvements in fuel efficiency, miles per gallon per car, that sort of stuff. And that they want to fund with co higher corporate taxes and, among other things, to uh, really curtail what our multinational corporations do, which is uh, send 
a lot of their profits overseas to low tax countries and then pay no taxes. It would put a stop to that too, which is tremendously important in terms of being able to uh, fund our government. And since business would be a prime beneficiary of these uh, the, the items in this bill, that makes a lot of sense. Then they want to break off the human infrastructure part, the part that would fund universal preschool and childcare and make permanent the uh, uh, child tax credits that were enacted in the 1.9 trillion stimulus measure earlier this month. And that they would fund with higher personal taxes on individuals making more than $400,000 a year on raising the capital gains tax for wealthy people from 20% to normal income, which would be about 40%, doing a range of things like that. By splitting it in two, they seem to want to be able to get Republican votes for the infrastructure half and then use the human infrastructure part that they can pass with the one remaining opportunity they have to pass a bill through reconciliation with a straight Democratic majority. Although I have to say, John Thune, the uh, third ranking Republican in the Senate, uh, who you think would welcome the ability to vote for a clean infrastructure bill, said, well, they're doing that so they can get this other stuff we're against passed on a, on a party line vote. And we don't like that. So we would be inclined to vote against everything. So, you know, if that isn't a damned, if you do damned, if you don't uh, political strategy, I don't know what is. So the, the amount of money they are talking about here is three to four trillion. Uh, Biden is already spending almost two trillion on the COVID relief bill. This is unprecedented especially in peacetime, at this point, the Republicans go wild about fears of inflation. Should we have fears of inflation over this unprecedented amount of government spending? Well, of course, the Republicans enacted on a party line vote under Trump, a nearly $2 trillion, slightly over $2 trillion, in effect, tax cut, over 80% of which went to the wealthiest Americans. So there's a little bit of double standard there. Uh, is there a, a prospect of inflation? Most economists don't think so. Even Jerome Powell, who is Donald Trump's Republican appointee to head the Federal Reserve, doesn't think so. Thinks that there's so many Americans who are either unemployed or who have left the labor force or been compelled to leave the labor force, chiefly women uh, who have to take care of their kids and can't do that you know, in, in, in the current economic situation that he sees no prospect of inflation returning. A, a lot of this is somewhat generational with people remembering the inflation of the 1970s, which was, you know, getting on to 40, uh, 50 years ago now. And uh, inflation really hasn't raised its head in a very long time. And as I said, most economists, including a number of Republicans, don't really see plausible effects from inflation. And finally, if the price of uh, getting back to a full employment economy with all of these additions to the economy to make us more productive and to create a prosperity that is much more broadly shared than it has been for the last 40 years, if the price of that is a slight rise of inflation, I think the country would be happy to pay it. Happy to pay it. 
The other big, big thing that's happening in Washington this week, we are speaking on Wednesday. Today, the Senate Rules Committee held its first hearing on Senate Bill Number 1. That's the Democrats' landmark voting rights bill. Just a, a note of historical significance here. Voting in the United States, unlike almost all other civilized countries, is not in the hands of the federal government. It's organized by the states and by the counties. It's, if you think for a minute, it's the county registrar of voters who runs elections wherever you live under laws passed by state legislatures. And so things are very different in different states and in different counties. And that's the way it's always been in America. Uh, how do the Democrats propose to change that and what what is their basis for claiming they can change that? Well, in, in, in this, as in many other ways, we kind of pay the price for being the world's oldest democracy. Uh, and our laws were put in place at a time where, you know, the federal government, which was a new invention uh, spread out over the entire eastern seaboard, had no capacity really to do just about anything. And so, uh, you know, at a time when most people never traveled very far from their home, you gave local government uh, whatever powers a government needed to have. And we are saddled with that 250 some years later. So that's, <laughs> that's the state of play. The Constitution does say, however, that Congress can set the rules and criteria for its own members. For, uh, and that is the point of entry for the the Democrats. Uh, part of it is to uh, renew parts of the Voting Rights Act that uh, the Supreme Court under John Roberts struck down in uh, 2013, I, I believe it was. Part of it is to really clean up campaign finance, to ban the dark money that now goes into campaigns, and to have a public funding mechanism if candidates choose to go with that for election of members of Congress with substantial matching funds that exceed matching, that are multiples of small donations that a candidate gets. And part of it also is to require for Congress, it can't do it for other offices, but for Congress, uh, that the states appoint nonpartisan commissions to do redistricting of congressional districts. Here, the uh, complete incompetence of the Trump administration is a factor working in the Democrats' behalf. If the census had been completed in a timely fashion, this bill would already be kind of late because states would have that data and would already have embarked on redistricting. Fortunately, the Trump administration so screwed that up as it screwed up so many things that the census data won't be available and made public until September or even October, which is pretty late uh, for some states. In fact, some states are required to have acted by then. It's not clear what will, what will happen. What that means is if this law is to be enacted, and of course it has to be enacted on a party line vote because Republicans will never go for this. Republicans have introduced over 200 voter suppression bills in various state legislatures over the last several weeks. So it's going to be enacted on the party line vote and the Democrats will have to get rid of the filibuster, which means this is one issue on which the Democrats will have to bring along uh, their lagging indicators to wit, 
Joe and Manchin, we know who they are. Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema. I mean, Kristen Cinema. I can imagine why she would uh, oppose going to a simple majority on this because the only way Arizona has been able to go Democratic is by not suppressing the vote. Th- this would at least enable her to be reelected and other Democrats uh, who, who run in Arizona to be elected as well. Let me just specify here that the that the bill the Democrats are proposing, which already passed the House, now it's before the Senate, would re- would require all kinds of things the Republicans have been trying to eliminate: uh, same day voter registration, online voter registration, voting rights for the formerly incarcerated, voting ID. Controversies, controversies could be resolved by having uh, voters sign sworn affidavits. They would not be required to show a government ID. And since millions of poor people don't have driver's licenses because they don't have cars, that would enable lots of poor people to avoid the ID requirements. The bill also um, mandates no excuse mail voting and requires prepaid postage for mail uh, voting, as well as permitting uh, voters to return their ballots to drop boxes and allowing third party ballot collection. All of these things are under attack by those 200 bills uh, in the states that you have referred to. Right. And it would also uh, permit early voting, which is a big factor. 15 days of of early, 15 days of early voting mandated. In Georgia, the the Republican legislature has uh, targeted that, knowing that there are a lot of African-American churches uh, which sort of march in procession to the polls on the Sunday before election. The the Democrats bill would allow those marches and that voting to continue. This is Senate Bill 1. The first hearing was held today, uh, Wednesday, um, before the Senate Rules Committee. And this is going to be this is going to be big. Uh, Finally, one more thing. We need our weekly update on the organizing campaign for Amazon workers in Bessemer, Alabama, the union that's hoping to win this election and become the bargaining agent for for the uh, workers. I learned already represents grave diggers, workers who make chicken McNuggets, gardeners who raise cannabis plants in commercial greenhouses, and the people who make Captain Crunch breakfast cereal. What kind of union is this? Well, increasingly, that's an American union where the opportunities for organizing are so relatively few and far between that when anyone sees an opening, they just rush right in. And that's what the Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Workers Union, the RWDSU, has done. And it's part of a larger union, um, which represents uh, United Food and Commercial Workers, which mainly represents supermarket workers, but also workers in the few uh, slaughterhouses that haven't gone uh, non-union in recent years. So it's a very eclectic part of a largely eclectic union. And that kind of reflects Uh, what happens when uh, unions scramble whenever they see an opening, which has been increasingly rare, but hopefully what's going on in Bessemer, Alabama, should the union win, could open a lot of doors uh, to a lot of unions to organize more. And just to underline how big this is, there's almost 6,000 workers at this one Amazon warehouse. This is the first large-scale union vote 
in Amazon's history. And it's in Alabama. Who would have thought? Who'd have thunk, although where it is in Alabama, uh, near Birmingham, it's it, in Bessemer, which is named after a steel company. When steel companies started to go south, this is where they went. And that was at a time when uh, the CIO could organize workers. And Alabama had a reasonably respectable rate of unionization uh, 40 years ago of over about a quarter of the whole workforce, which is more than any but two states in the United States today. So there's a union heritage there. It's linked to the civil rights activism of that community. It's a largely African-American workforce. And we'll see how it comes out. I read in the New York Times that the RWDSU, which apparently began in the 30s representing department store clerks in, in Macy's and Gimbel's and places like that, right. today is headed by a Harvard Law School graduate uh, who has written about his identity as a gay Jewish labor leader. At the Mid-South office of the union, which is the one organizing the, Al the Amazon uh, uh, warehouse in Bessemer, about half the members, the New York Times reports, supported Trump's re-election bid. That's kind of surprising. Well, no, but that's, that's a lot of the white working class in the South, so it shouldn't be surprising. The warehouse in Bessemer, however, is overwhelmingly African-American, and I don't think you'd find those voting patterns there which is why it helped very much that Joe Biden basically recommended that they join, uh, that they join the union. Harold Meyerson at home in our nation's capital. Harold, always great to have you on the show. Always great to be here, John. Same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Michelle Obama's memoir has just come out in paperback. It's called Becoming, and it sold more than 14 million copies worldwide in hardcover. It was named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times, NPR, People Magazine, and lots of other places. Michelle Obama also won a Grammy for Best Spoken Word Album of the Year. We spoke with Amy Willens about the book when it was first published. Amy, of course, is a writer and journalist who's written extensively about Haiti, the Middle East, California, and the Trump family, which she covers for this podcast. She's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation and the former Jerusalem bureau chief of The New Yorker magazine. She wrote the award-winning book on Haiti, Farewell, Fred Voodoo, and she's a 2020 Guggenheim Fellow. She also teaches in the Literary Journalism Program at UC Irvine. We talked about Michelle Obama's book in November 2018. Well, we're interested in what the book has to say about politics, because hers were a bit mysterious, maybe more complicated than she let on. She was part of two presidential campaigns, a decade at the top of American politics. And of course, the Republicans went after her. Starting in 2008, with all the fury and all the lies they could launch, she reminds us about that at the very beginning of her book. Yeah, she, she says she wants to take apart the three words, angry black woman, which is the worst thing that she is for those people. Um, and she believes that it's her blackness and her femininity that were the real targets of the people who were detracting from her stature when she was campaigning with her husband. 
Also, while Barack Obama, as she often says, was kind of a unicorn and a hybrid and a very different kind of person with Kenyan ancestry and and just a, a a very strange being, she herself was an American born black American. And that's why she feels a lot of the hatred came down on her. We look to Michelle's book to learn what she has to say about her real politics. In her story about growing up, it's important to her, as you've said, that she's from Chicago's South Side, a legendary black neighborhood in America, maybe second only to Harlem. And in high school, she was best friends with Jesse Jackson's daughter around their house a lot as Jesse was preparing to run for president. What does Michelle have to say about being in the center of black militant politics in America in the, in the 80s? She wasn't that into it. She says it was kind of fun and interesting, and there were sometimes famous people there, and it largely stood in the way of her and her friend Santita Jackson getting to where they wanted to go because they were relying on the grown-ups, and the grown-ups would, like, have to stop off at a meeting and then have to stop off at some, you know, place where they picked up food for some rally, and then they wouldn't get to the shoe store in time to catch the sale. She actually says, I liked seeing what they were doing, but, quote, I needed rather desperately to get to the water tower place before the K-Swiss sneaker sale ended. So, I mean, she's portraying herself as a teenage all-American girl, and she wants her readers to empathize with that and to relate to it. She's very concerned with making herself what my students all call relatable rather than high-class first lady with intellectual interests. Or, or someone, even as a teenager, engaged with the political project of black America. And yet she knew very well that her family had decided to stay on the South Side when many people moved out, not just white people, but middle-class black people. She wanted to remain there. Her family wanted to remain there. Her father was a Democratic precinct captain, and he was very involved in Democratic politics. She has to have known more than just when the case swiss sneaker sale was on. And, of course, she went to Princeton because her older brother, Craig Robinson, was already there as a basketball star. She was at Princeton from 81 to 85. She says she had never lived in a white world before. At Princeton, she says she lived mostly in a black student world, hanging around at the Third World Center. The interesting thing to me is that the chapter on Princeton, she says nothing about ideas, courses, books, arguments, even though she minored in African-American studies. I know. It's a really strange thing. She has to have been thinking and growing politically while she was there. Also, the experience of being the only black kid in a classroom or seeing yourself as one of a very tiny minority in such a white bastion as Princeton after having lived on the south side of Chicago has to have been completely disorienting. She talks about it to a degree, and she talks about meeting her roommates and having a white roommate who didn't want to live with her anymore, and she talks about being around her older brother and at the Third World Center. Yes, that's what it was called then. But she doesn't mention, you know, reading Franz Fanon or Marx or any or Malcolm X or, uh, you know, any of the grand figures from African-American writing. In contrast, Obama's book about when he went to Occidental College is 
all about how opened his eyes to be in black studies and to read Franz Fanon, Malcolm X, and W.E.B. Du Bois. This was a transformative experience as he tells his story. Of course, he was a kid from Hawaii who wasn't really African-American at all, as you have said. But still, you wonder if there wasn't more to her intellectual life at Princeton, or, or maybe there wasn't. She met Barack in 1989. Barack had been a community organizer on the South Side for three years before he decided to go to law school and then came back. I mean, she barely mentions the fact that her uh, husband had been a community organizer for three years in her neighborhood. No, she doesn't seem interested in it at all. She doesn't seem to have really talked to him very much about it, although there are, there's a paragraph here or there about you know, being at a bar and having him talk about community organizing. But it doesn't seem to be the top of her list about things she treasures in him. Probably her most famous statement in the 2008 campaign when after Obama won the nomination, she said, for the first time in my adult lifetime, I'm really proud of my country. We kind of know or we think we know what she meant. That black man could run for president. Huge thing in American history. It was a classic political gaffe when somebody says something true that you're not supposed to say. And after that, we think she was required to keep pretty quiet about what she really thought, but it got her in a lot of trouble. And in the book, she takes this up and says she was just misunderstood. Yes, she says she was misunderstood. She was very proud of her family for having gotten through this election. The country was so nice to them. It was so heartening to be a black person and receive this kind of understanding when for so long one had feared that one might not. All of these things, but never really addressing why that kind of a statement would be so incendiary to so many. But what interested me, too, is that afterwards, she kind of went to Barack and said, I'm so sorry, I never realized that would be taken in that way. I speak too freely. What should we do? And then, like 20 minutes later, she had a team. <laughs> and she had a personal aide. She had a scheduler. She had a media consultant. She had an airplane. And she had hair and makeup on the plane. <laughs> so that's what fixed Michelle Obama and stopped her, really, from speaking in that way. And uh, what she said, her media consultant told her, was to remember the things I most enjoyed talking about. And what did that turn out to be? Well, that turned out to be my love for my husband and my kids, my connection to working mothers, and my proud Chicago roots. I guess the Chicago's a little, a little incendiary. <laughs> Only a little. No, but what's interesting about that is what she was told by her media consultant was essentially assume the role of the first lady already. Before your first lady, act like a first lady. Concern yourself with women's problems, women's things, and your husband and your children, and stop talking about, you know, politics. In fact, there's very little about the other parts of the campaigns, the people they're running against, how they get votes, how they don't get votes. She talks about this great post, uh, first time I've been proud of my country. Uh, after that, her first appearance on The View, where she sat around with the usual suspects. And she says, quote, talking about attacks against me, yes, but also laughing about the girls and the fist bumps and the nuisance of pantyhose. I'm yeah. sorry. <laughs> it's just, it hurts me to, to read that. And then she says, and people started buying the black and white dress that I was wearing on the show. 
I was having an impact. In the 2016 campaign, she was back on the road campaigning now for Hillary and against Trump. You know, I think a lot of us think her greatest moment came in the speech she gave right after Trump's Access Hollywood pussy-grabbing tape. Let's listen to a little bit of it. This is not something that we can ignore. It's not something we can just sweep under the rug as just another disturbing footnote in a sad election season. Because this was not just a lewd conversation. This wasn't just locker room banter. This was a powerful individual speaking freely and openly about sexually predatory behavior and actually bragging about kissing and groping women, using language so obscene that many of us were worried about our children hearing it when we turn on the TV. And to make matters worse, <laughs> it now seems very clear that this isn't an isolated incident. It's one of countless examples of how he has treated women his whole life. And I have to tell you that I listen to all of this and I feel it so personally. The shameful comments about our bodies, the disrespect of our ambitions and intellect, the belief that you can do anything you want to a woman, it is cruel, it's, it's frightening. And the truth is, it hurts. It, it, it hurts. It's a great speech, it's a political speech. Uh, she has the tremor in the voice. The tremor in the voice is not fake. And, uh, and she has two girls. And, you know, I was making fun just now about her saying the things I really care about are only my girls and my husband and my pantyhose. But she cares about how her girls grow up in America, and this was horrifying to her. And to see a candidate like that running, I don't want to get a tremor in my voice, <laughs> but against a woman of really a reasonable stature, political stature, and able to talk like that. And indeed, Michelle was right. It was swept under the rug, essentially. It may come back to haunt him, but... The New York Times the next day, commenting on that speech, called her, quote, the most outspoken first lady in modern history, close quote. What does she say about this in the book? She describes this very momentous thing in one paragraph as if she's, uh, as if she's not so proud of it. And she should be really proud of it. Not only was it a great speech, and no doubt partly at least written by her, but perfectly delivered. And finally comes the bad ending of the whole story. Obama is replaced in the White House by Donald Trump. They did everything they could on the campaign trail to prevent that, and they failed. We wonder, why does she think about this? Why does she think Trump got elected? Why did Hillary lose? Was there anything Obama could have done as president to have made the Democrats stronger in 2016? How does she explain Trump's victory in the book? She says, I'm not a political person, and so I'm not going to attempt an analysis. And that is just a giant cop-out on so many levels, really. First of all, she's a political person. Second of all, She's done an analysis of it. Why isn't she offering that analysis? That's a really important analysis for the American people to hear. But she and the editors of her book have decided not to permit that to be put into print. And at the end, she sums up Barack's accomplishments as president and her own as first lady. Well, there's the vegetable garden, and it's bigger than it ever was, and she's put some new trees in it. There's the... Um, 
new set of dishware, the Obama presidential dishware that she oversaw. There's the um, campaign for kids' healthy eating, crucially important, especially in the black community because of so much eating out at fast food restaurants. And the, the concomitant Let's Move, which is the dancing exercise program that she propagated. And what else? That's pretty much it. Programs in the Third World for Girls' Education. So this is not a political book. It's not a book about what she learned about politics or how she learned to do politics or how the Obamas changed politics in America. What kind of book is it? So what I think is that it, it has a carefully crafted uh, demographic target, and that target is women. I think it's women voters, and that she doesn't want to bore us with policy, but they're a political family from Chicago. Those people talk politics like it's Rice Krispies. And all of that is really missing from this book. You know, I wonder, is it possible that Michelle Obama actually is not a political person, that the thing she cares most about is childhood obesity and healthy eating? We would like her to be more political, more of a left-wing Democrat, and maybe she isn't. Whatever politics there are, she is not at a point right now where she wants to discuss that. But I also think that those issues that you talk about, uh, childhood obesity and the let's move uh, idea, are political issues and that she thinks of them that way. It's not like decorating the White House. Well, we're talking here as if now that it's over, she should tell us the real story the of what she really thinks, but maybe it's not over. Well, this was my thought in reading it, that it is such a carefully scrubbed and attended to book. She's left so much politics out. Who does that, really? Who leaves politics out of what they say? Politicians. <laughs> and, and so I thought, she's running for office, and she's kind of clearing the, the stage. She's getting rid of all the garbage from her past and not um, certainly not bringing any new stuff in. And at the end, she says, I am never running for office, never, never, never. But do I believe that? Not from reading this book. And she's doing a book tour in 15,000-seat arenas. And what else is the purpose of this book? Is it to tell Michelle Obama's story? It's to tell the story of becoming Michelle Obama and onward. And onward. Amy Willens wrote about Michelle Obama for the Washington Post. Thank you, Amy. Thanks, John. Michelle Obama's memoir, Becoming, is out now in paperback with a new introduction. It's also out in an edition adapted for young readers. Same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time for our regular feature on TV in the Age of the Virus, and so we turn to Ella Taylor, of course. She's a longtime film critic and writer whose work has appeared in the New York Times, the LA Weekly, and at NPR.org. We reached her today at home in Santa Monica. Ella, welcome back. Thank you, John. Well, there's a new documentary that opened this week on HBO Max about QAnon, the craziest of right-wing conspiracy theories. And 
one that helped mobilize people to attack the Capitol on January 6th. This is a six-part miniseries, and it's called Q Into the Storm. They'll be releasing a new episode every Sunday. You've seen several of them. Tell us about Q Into the Storm. Well, it's exactly what you say it is. Um, from what I've seen so far, it's directed by Colin Hoback, and the executive producer is Adam McKay, he of the wonderful series Succession, which we discussed here on the show. The unifying question, I guess, that tr tries to turn this into a bit of a thriller is, who is Q? <laughs> um, most of the QAnon um, aficionados or members or whatever they're called don't know either, apparently. And it's a little bit beside the point, <laughs> I think. Um, there's a more meaningful question that is posed early on, which is, when is free speech too much speech? <laughs> and that, of course, is followed by immediate cutaway to uh, the storming of the Capitol to suggest that sometimes free speech needs to be curbed. And and that's problematic in the United States where, you know, the resistance to government regulation is so powerful um, and the emphasis on free speech admirably so prevalent that it's not an easy question to answer. Nonetheless, the series does make clear that uh, not only are the QAnon folks pretty crazy, <laughs> <laughs> some of them are just nerdy, some of them are full-on barking mad, and I'll get into that in in a minute. But the, the people who are chasing them to expose them <laughs> are also a little bit nuts because they're, they're almost as obsessive as the QAnon members. But I learned a great deal from it. The f I've seen two episodes, and um, I learned, for example, that... Uh, the two phrases, everything has meaning, and this is not a game, are ones that appear frequently on the, the many QAnon drops and, and boards. Uh, and the prodigious ability of, of members and fans to make connection, causal connections between anything and anything. <laughs> so there really is, the, you know, the movement such as it is, because it's awfully fragmented. Um, it appears on boards that are open to, uh, to everyone. And I think people probably know already this much I knew, which is that it was first housed uh, at uh, 8chan, which is a, a board in the Philippines, which is administered by an American named Frederick Brennan, who has a very severe uh, physical disability that leaves him with foreshortened uh, limbs. So he's pretty much a face is really how he is. But he, unlike a lot of the other people who are very active on the extreme right and a few on the extreme left as well, is highly intelligent and articulate and is clearly getting more and more uncomfortable with, the, um, with who he's housing. But he's very devoted to the principle of absolute uh, free speech. So the first episode is a rather manic, speedy, snappy introduction to the director and other people who are trying to find out 
who Q is. Um, and it's becoming increasingly clear that Q either doesn't exist or is more than one person. Um, the second episode begins, uh, settles down um, much more and um, it begins to give us a much more complete portrait, I think, of the kinds of people that they round up as um, uh, speakers for the movement that isn't really a movement. And the beliefs are wacky beyond belief, you know, that Hillary Clinton eats babies. There's an obsession with paedophilia, with the with so-called Pizzagate and with sex trafficking. Now, somebody points out quite correctly, one of the um, the people that they talk to, that these kinds of conspiracy, conspiracy theories are actually as old as the hills. <laughs> and that, you know, one, I was looking for a, the director to draw back a little bit, and perhaps he will in future episodes, and look at this from a societal point of view that, you know, obviously COVID has made these tendencies much worse because people are cooped up at home. The kinds of people who follow QAnon tend to be cooped up at home anyway. And we're introduced to um, a couple of people who uh, who are active on or, or run 4chan, which is where most of the traffic, um, the QAnon traffic has moved to, a father and son team. Um, one of whom is an oddball, as to the son, uh, with enormous mathematical ability and almost no ability to be around other people. And his father, who is an affable but rather sinister figure who appears to be very good-natured. His name is Ron Watkins, and he's very ordinary-looking. He has a lot of military experience, but he looks like a, a clerical worker, a social security or or wherever but he becomes over the second episode a lot more sinister and appears to be one of these people who loves gets a big kick out of pulling the wool over other people's eyes and evading questions or making um hints that that he's up to something that he wants to shoot all politicians and so on and so forth and the boundary between playing games and reality appears quite sinister because you really can't tell by the second episode, which is very well edited. The other major point that it makes is that there are a small number of canny people, including, I think, the father, uh, who are making a lot of money off some very credulous people. Um, that they run these uh, websites uh, that are essentially platforms, boards for people uh, to post absolutely anything, and they become super spreaders uh, in their own right. So that, in a way, uh, what QAnon is, is a kind of business that's being run by uh, master manipulators. Now, I don't know if that will turn out to be the answer um, to the question of who who actually Q is, but I don't think it much matters because I think part of the, you know, I had a relative who was a conspiracy theorist in England and it seemed to me very clear that he was trying to escape from the dreariness of everyday life by making up all these uh, fantastic 
you know, lurid uh, stories and he really very sincerely believes in aliens, you know, invading from Mars. And there are more of these people than we can, we have imagined until now. Um, The second episode also points out that there have been um, conspiracy theorists of the left Obviously, social media has made all this much worse. He, they point out Anonymous, which is now defunct, I think, um, but used to target corporations, and it was on the far left. And then there was the, the truly disgraceful Gamergate, um, in which uh, which targeted female gamers and, and feminists. And they do skate over that rather fast, because both of them were um, were pretty serious. So that's the the main drift of this. I'm assuming, you know, and much of this is already known. So I would, I'm hoping that the remaining four episodes, um, none of which are boring, by the way, none of this is boring at all, will begin to pull back from this and and uh, try to answer the question: not who is Q, but are these people just nuts, or are they dangerous nuts, uh, and do they constitute a movement? that we have to worry about as the media is certainly presenting them because the actual phenomenon is not new. It's just that they've been vastly amplified both by COVID uh, and um, uh, by the existence of, of the internet itself. Several critics have complained that the HBO documentary on QAnon does more harm than good by sort of making a video game out of trying to figure out who Q is. Uh, I wonder if you agree with that. I do, uh, on the whole. I mean, uh, I do think that the focus is not correct. It's very obvious to me why they did it, because they want it to play out as a thriller and it will gain more audiences that way. But, you know, from a sociological point of view, I think it can be much more interesting to look at it in a much more macro way and in a global way too, Um, because this transcends uh, national borders. There's one guy whose name is Baruch the Scribe, although I'm not at all convinced that he's Jewish, um, who's in South Africa and ran one of these boards. Um, And he's a wonderful illustration of a very hopeful um, development in this movement, which is that they're all fighting each other. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, that's the uh, the documentary Q Into the Storm on HBO Max. Now it's time for something completely different. Can you recommend a documentary that is not about a right-wing conspiracy theory focused on cannibalistic pedophiles? Uh, I can. Um, it's one that's focused on Tina Turner, it's called Tina, and it will also, uh, it also debuts on HBO, I believe on Saturday. Yes. And uh, it's a one-off film. Now, we are absolutely saturated with rock docs um, at the moment, and they're almost always focusing on the dysfunctional families or the addictions or the abuse where women, the women, um, are concerned uh, and domestic violence. Um, I think of the the documentary of Amy about Amy Amy Whitehouse, um, the Janice. Uh, none of which were neither of which were bad documentaries, nor is uh, Whitney the Whitney Houston one. And we now look forward to a new National Geographic portrait of the work 
of Aretha Franklin, which is going to star, it's a drama, and it's starring the wonderful Cynthia Erivo. So that's one I'm really looking forward to. But especially where the women concerned, the emphasis on f- is, is firmly on uh, abuse or, or their dysfunctional childhoods or their drug addictions in the case of Janis Joplin uh, and Amy Winehouse, of course, and <laughs> Whitney Houston. Uh, and there's plenty of that in, in Tina, which is directed by Dara Lindsay and TJ Martin, but in a very critical way, because much of this documentary focuses not on the well-known you know, domestic violence that she suffered at the hands of her husband, Ike Turner, um, who launched her career, but on the on her increasing irritation once she found her own persona and her own voice with the fact that all the media ever want her to ask about is Ike Turner's abuse. <laughs> she voiced this disapproval 16 years after she was already a figure in her own right. So it, it balances very nicely by uh, with Turner's evolution as a singer and an absolutely magnetic world-class stage performer as well that filled stadiums. And I must add also, get to this later, all-round mensch. <laughs> um, she seems like a wonderful person that you would you can see why she's so loved, not just for her music, but but for her personality. In the same vein, strangely enough, as Dolly Parton. She has this kind of warm appreciation for her fans and the gratitude for her good fortune that makes her so loved. It's divided into five chapters, not in chronological order, which I was very grateful for because it's punctuated by performance footage, which you can just watch forever, given that it's Tina Turner. I mean, she once she got out from under Ike, uh, in fact, it was Phil Spector, strangely enough, who tried to pry her loose from Ike and encouraged her to develop her own voice, but she failed to take in the United States initially and was an absolute huge success all over Europe. Europe just took to her like a duck to water once she cut her hair into that wonderful huge shag um, and uh, got the the short fringe dresses. It was able to allow her to express herself in her own way. Phil Spector was one factor in that, and the other was Buddhism, <laughs> two very strange influences. <laughs> that we don't usually associate with each other. No, indeed, and rightly so. <laughs> in fact, Ike introduced her to uh, a Buddhist teacher, and uh, as a result of the, the way it liberated her, she left him after an overdose that um, was the cause of him introducing to her. She had two kids with him and looked after two kids of his. And uh, she just reinvented herself with the help of uh, Roger Davis, her new manager, was everything that Ike Turner was not. He was supportive and innovative and understood, you know, where she was coming from. She's gorgeous, um, and she also had that incredible gravelly voice, a little bit like Janice, who that you couldn't mistake for anybody else. And uh, they dwell on quite rightly on the album "Private Dancer," which made her um, such a huge success. The two songs, "What's Love Got to Do with It" and "I Can't Stop the Rain," two of my favorites. I've got to say. 
Uh, and then there came a book, I, Tina, and I think that the film relies quite heavily on that. Now she's happily married and has been for many years to Erwin Buck, who is also the executive producer of this movie. There was a film in 1993 with Angela Bassett that I did not, I have not seen. I don't know whether you have. It's pretty uh, good. Is it good? Yeah, well, Angela Bassett's a wonderful performer also. But this is uh, in 2019 as a Broadway musical, and she appears with the young actress who plays her, who's wearing the big shag. And the and it's extremely moving because she's quite frail by now. I mean, she had to be pretty much held, held upright to go on the stage, but she was obviously thrilled and also understood very clearly that it was time for her to go away, as she put it. So that's an incredibly um, moving thing. But I think that the uh, she's also very forgiving of Ike by that time, despite the fact that the details of their relationship are just harrowing. Um, he died, I think, in the 1990s. The, the distinctive thing of this movie is that perhaps because at least one of them, one of the directors is a woman, is the is the fact that it it dwells on her continued efforts to not have Ike be the central narrative of her life. And in fact, she did free herself from him psychologically as well as, as physically. And I really appreciated that because you don't see that in many other rock documentaries. Tina opens Saturday on HBO Max, and we have time, just a little time, for one more. The One More is a movie that um, a lot of people have heard a lot about because its star, Anthony Hopkins, is up for an Academy Award, which he may well win. Um, this is a, a drama uh, directed by Florian Zeller, um, which you can see just about everywhere now. It opened a couple of weeks ago. You can see it in some AMC theatres, I think Burbank and Woodland Hills, and also on Amazon, Apple TV, Fandango, Voodoo, and all the, the rest of them. It is called The Father. Father. Yes, it's called The Father. And it's about an elderly man who is sinking into dementia. So it's another film about identity in a way, but it's about the, the dissolution of identity, which in principle is very sad and often in practice. Um, it really is a film about confusion, and it's shot from the point of view of the father himself. There's a father and a daughter. There's a carer. Um, there's a husband of the daughter, maybe. And these are played by an ensemble of fantastic British actors, the daughter who's extremely solicitous and somewhat too dependent on her father is played mostly by Olivian, Olivia Coleman. There's a husband who is played alternately by Mark Gattis, who was Mycroft Holmes in the Sherlock series, which he created, um, and Rufus Sewell. The carer um, is Imogen Poots, a very charming young actress, Imogen Poots. Um, and Olivia Williams shows up alternately as the daughter also and a nurse. So it's very self-consciously a revolving cast of actors 
playing the same small um, roles. Why that is, I'll leave people to to see. Um, but uh, gradually, only very gradually, do we realize that the entire reality inside this drama is from the point of view and of Anthony Hopkins' character. And he gives an absolutely a performance of such extraordinary range. He's in almost every frame, which for a man, an actor of 83 years old is very hard indeed, let alone the fact that he has to show about six different personalities during the course of that. It's, he's, it's very, he makes it very clear that this was once a very powerful, charming, extremely egotistical man, perhaps not unlike the actor himself who's known for his bluntness and, and uh, obstinacy. Uh, and it's handled with delicacy and humor, but also an unflinching look at, at uh, the disintegration of a personality. And uh, if you don't need your films all sugar and spice, this is probably the one for you. So today we've talked about Cue Into the Storm, a six-episode miniseries documentary on HBO Max. Tina, opening Saturday on HBO Max. And also The Father, starring Anthony Hopkins. That's streaming online starting March 26th on the usual VOD platforms, Amazon Prime, Fandango Now, iTunes, Voodoo, and so on. Our TV critic is Ella Taylor. Ella, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you, John. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. KPFK's general manager is Aniel Zuberi-Fields. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Oh,